It's Jim Paff, and welcome back to the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are the cruelest of all people because they're subjective and selfish in the way that they address society. Kind people have the interests of others in mind, but they speak truth into society. Follow us on iTunes, give us a five-star rating, and also uh, give us your review of the podcast. You can also follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting apps. Now let's get to the show. I'm very excited to uh, have my pastor, uh, Steve Holt. He was my pastor for many years in Colorado Springs, at, uh, and he's just been a really good friend. This guy has great insights. He'll tell you that I'm just a local pastor and this sort of thing. He's really had some impact uh, because he's been involved in some things around a city where evangelical Christian uh, ministries of national importance are located, and that's Colorado Springs. He's well-respected in that community, been a great friend and a great pastor to me for many years. He's got key insights into what's happening right now, and I want to be able to let you understand uh, what's happening from the Christian perspective. I think we've got to really rethink what's happening with churches um, I I am very disappointed personally in the evangelical movement and what's happening there. Most churches are buying in to the ways of this culture. I mean, it's one thing just to, to not be judgmental about culture. It's another thing to really affect it with a message of hope that is real. And most of what you see out there in the evangelical movement is, frankly, from my perspective, namby-pamby, non-biblical, uh, non-focus and directed uh, information, and uh, it, it's it's about the show, and it's a, about uh, the cool things that we can do, rather than really sharing a message of truth that will lead to real justice in society. Steve Holt has an excellent perspective on this. That's why I wanted him to be on the pag- podcast. So without further ado, here's uh, Steve Holt of The Road in Chapel Hills in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I want to welcome everyone to the Against Nice podcast. I'm really excited about the podcast today. I got my great friend and honestly pastor forever, you know, I uh, Steve Holt. Uh, Steve is the uh, uh, pastor of The Road in Chapel Hills in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, he, The church I went to back in the to, uh, prior to 2010, uh, we were at for, I, what, was I think it was seven years. Long time. Yeah, it was a long time. And uh, Steve is just a great guy. Uh, just a, a quick bio um, before we start. Steve was a missionary in Japan for 10 years. Uh, he graduated from Fuller Theological Cemetery, Seminary. Cemetery, sorry. <laughs> that was a bad one. Uh, but because Fuller's not a cemetery, there are some some of these that are can be. But anyway, he's married to his wife, Liz, for 35 years, just this September, which is kind of cool. So I got to prepare myself for you there, my friend. Um, he, th- this is a cool thing. They met while smuggling Bibles into China. How appropriate to today. And I love that. And he's written two books, The God Wild Marriage. It's a book for men on how to be great husbands. Uh, Worship Warrior on the Life of David. Uh, he planted and pastored Mountain Springs Church, which is where I, in, in Colorado Springs, which is where I attended with him 
Uh, he left there and uh, went to and started the road in 2014. The cool thing is he's got seven children. So, so like, uh, so welcome, Steve, by the way. Thanks, thanks for being on my podcast today. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, GM. Thank you. And by the way, he, so he's got seven kids. So like I moved back to uh, Woodland Park <laughs> about a, a little more than a year and a half ago. And we've hardly seen one another. We're only 24 minutes, 25 minutes down the road. But that's because he's got seven children. And by the way, you hunt and you fish. I love that. I got to connect you with a, a trout guide friend of mine up here. He's a cool dude. Um, but uh, you're, you're kind of a self-sustaining sort of guy. You ought to tell people about that. I love that. You've got seven kids and you're self-sustaining. You probably hardly go to the grocery store except for a few things because everything else you take care of yourself. Am I you're right? So funny. You're so funny. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, well, you know, I think part of the, the growth that my wife and I have had is that we are more and more aware of our bodies as we're getting older. And so we are very acutely aware of putting the right fuel in the engine. Yeah. And so because of that, um, probably about 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, we really made a big shift into much more organic everything. And so we, uh, we have a garden, you know, and we had a greenhouse and all that. And then, of course, I was already hunting and fishing. I tend to be a catch and release guy because I'm a fly fisherman. And that yeah. really, really bugs my wife. Oh, she yeah. just can't stand that. <laughs> she'll, she'll, be, she'll be sitting there by the river with her Bible and she'll come along sometimes and hang out and just spend time with the Lord. Sometimes we'll bring some inner tubes where the kids go down, but all my boys fly fish with me. So we'll all be out there scattered around. Hey, Dad, I got one or I've got one or whatever. And she said, well, bring it. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do trout tonight. No, no, Liz, it's catching <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a frustration for her. So I actually broke down this year and I actually kept, I mean, it really hurt my heart <laughs> because I can't stand to see this big fish. It's so gorgeous and so beautiful, yeah. especially brown trout. I mean, brown oh, trout. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. rare. They're hard to catch. It's crazy. It's so beautiful. But I have kept a few here and there. But yeah, we're, we're always stocked up on elk and deer and antelope. So you can't catch and release elk. He has nothing to complain about. He has nothing to complain about. Yeah. And you can't catch and release elk. That just is not going to happen. When I first got into hunting, she used to love to just test me. And the way yeah. she would test me is, did you catch anything when I would come back from hunting? Yeah. <laughs> did you catch anything? And I was like, honey... Uh, just shut up, you know. But, <laughs> That's um, hilarious. But no, so we, yeah, so we really do love that. And I think it's one of the, it's one of those benefits of living in Colorado that I never anticipated because I was not into that level of, of fishing, hunting, outdoor stuff when we came back from Japan. All the years I lived, you know, first years of our life in some of the densest cities of the world. Yeah. We met, when we met, we were in Beijing, in, in, uh, which is Peking or Beijing, one of the largest cities. And then we, when we got married, we were in uh, Tokyo, which was one of the most dense populated cities in the world. Then we were in LA area in Pasadena on the outskirts of LA going to graduate school. Then we came to Colorado Springs. So when we got here, we had been married a long time, even at that point. And we, uh, I just discovered, you know, the mountains in a new way. So 
I'm kind of a late bloomer in relation to the outdoor stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very therapeutic, very therapeutic for me. I feel really close to God. Um, I feel very, um, relaxed when I'm hunting and fishing. And so it's a joy to have taught my kids that too, and to take them along also. You know, it's a, it is a sustainability issue. I mean, there is a need for that cycle. Uh, now, now when it comes to trout in this state, I think you're right to, to catch and release. By the way, my trout fishing guide friend here in Woodland Park had a young kid. He was, I think he was 10 years old. He caught a 21 inch brown. It was, the, yeah, it's the weirdest thing I ever heard. And for yeah. those who don't do trout fishing, that is like extremely rare. And well, this kid had never huge. trout fished before. And that was his it's first huge. fish. Yeah, that's huge. That was his first pit? That's the first That was his first caught. trout ever caught. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Where it's amazing. There, right? I mean, it's like, I know. Like, I guide, I guide a lot of guys um, with uh, fly fishing. Because mm -hmm. when people hear that I fly fish, and I think because they, I'm, you know, I'm heard by different, lots of people, then people, and I'm always saying, no, I, you know, I really don't have time and da, da, da. But every once in a while, I'll take staff and people like that with me. And I cannot tell you how many times I've set people up and I've got them getting, getting an understanding of how to cast and stuff, yep. how many really big fish they catch right out, um, out there. It just amazes me. And it's, I feel like it's God's grace to kind of hook them yeah. with something that could be a beautiful part of their relaxation side of their life, because we all need time for reflection. And one thing about fly fishing is you're, you're always in a beautiful area. Yeah. Um, it's always, uh, it's always quiet. I mean, you're yeah. always quiet, you know, and right. then I think thirdly, it's there's something about how difficult it is to learn because in, in the initial stages, it's pretty difficult to learn how to know what kind of fly to be using um, yeah. that you feel such a reward, real sense of reward when you fake out. I mean, you fake out a trout in his terrain. I mean, in his environment, you faked him out and then but you're not going to hurt him. You're yeah. not going to hurt him. You're going to just, you're going to gently, I always tell it, I show everybody how to gently handle the trout so that there's no damage to them and they can just, and then even if there's a little bit of shock, uh, there's a certain way that you handle them in the water so that they are fine. But You know, it, by the way, interestingly, that is a perfect segue <laughs> in, um, into what I want to talk about today because um, I, I have been, I've been wanting you to come on uh, contacted you the other day because I am, I'm very concerned about where we're at as a country. I've been talking about these things on this podcast and elsewhere for some time now. Uh, we, we have a culture today that has really gone awry. It looks so different than what we have been as a culture in this country, even 20 years ago and it was kind of getting bad then <laughs> and uh but but we still had some touch points you still had the greatest generation alive you know the folks that lived during world war ii they had a sense of what america was like prior to world war ii even in some cases because of their connection to their grandparents almost back to the civil war 
that generation had some touch point with that, whether it's just by story or experience. And we don't have that anymore. The greatest generation, I mean, everyone's in their 90s by now. Uh, and and they're, they're leaving the scene very quickly. I think the last uh, memorial at the USS Arizona for those who had survived that, I think there were only like a handful there. It used to be dozens and dozens. And the only ones that couldn't come were the ones that had to travel. So we're in a different culture right now. Yeah. I think when I, when I consider those who have a, a traditional cultural outlook in this country, those who are conservative politically, people in the church, I think they don't know how to connect with these changes that have gone on, and they're totally out of the picture. So when you talk about that in trout fishing, that uh, supreme uh, – wonderful feeling that you figured out the right bait to put on there. Cause it does change all the time. You know, you stick your foot in the water and put your net down the, the water to gather up the dirt and the stuff on the bottom. And that's how you figure out the stuff that they're eating. Cause you catch it in the net and then you got to duplicate that with a fly and may and finding and making those flies is not always an easy thing. You can buy one off the shelf, but sometimes in your certain area, you've really got to put one together that works for the particular aspect of that species that's around. And then you got to update that all the way through the fishing season. And it's a great analogy because I think we're way behind the eight ball. Those who care about America and its founding principles, which were aspirational at the time and not merely practical because we didn't have it all together until after the civil war, all this stuff is looming in front of us. And I think we're lost in this and we don't even know how to have the success just like you would have in trout fishing. Am I missing something here? And what's your perspective on that? Well, I think that you're exactly right, Jim. Um, I think that by virtue of even the term conservative, we tend yeah. to conserve, right? So we, we, we can become very satisfied with status quo. We tend to be a status quo people that like the way things have been. That's the reason we're conservative. And the reason the liberals you know, began to make those changes about a decade ago and call themselves progressives was to give a positive spin to the negativity that went with being a liberal. But it's also true. They're progressing. They're moving. They're, they're constantly thinking about literally changing everything. And yeah. it used to be just changing a little bit here and there. And then I think with the, with the new radical, you know, the new radical that's come up, which would be that, I would consider them kind of the Gen X, um, the Gen X, the Gen Z uh, together, not so much Gen X, but maybe Gen Z um, coming up through the ranks that have gone to college now with the type of radical professors that we've tended to have at some of the major universities. There's just a different mindset. They literally don't care about our constitution. They And we are now seeing where the constitution is actually just just completely neglected in relation to a decision. And I think they want to see if anybody in the conservative side of things will even challenge them on that. So I think with, you know, with something like, um, I guess I would call it maybe the pluralism, how pluralism in the culture has affected us as it relates to, to a new contextualization. We really need to have a new contextualization politically, a new contextualization spiritually. And I was a missionary. So when we came into Japan in the 80s, um, in China before that, 
we really studied, I probably read at least a dozen books just on culture in Japan. And one of my favorite books was called the Bushido Code. And the Bushido Code was talking about basically the heart of the Japanese people. Not necessarily the external things about how you bow and how you do tea ceremony and all those things. Those are, those are fine and good and they're good to know, but what's the heart behind the tea ceremony? What's the heart behind bowing? What's the heart behind their view of seniority, et cetera? Well, it goes back to the Bushido code and the Bushido code would be the samurai code. So mm -hmm. we studied that to understand how to contextualize the gospel to the Japanese people at that time, that was way different than the way we contextualize the gospel in America. And I think probably there's a need for a new contextualization politically. So it's just not the way it was in 1985. It's not the way it was in 1975. And even as, a, even as, uh, as political um, analysis is before us, we definitely see, for example, I'll just give you a great example. I've got now a family that ranges in age from 32 to 15. So <laughs> last yeah, night, everybody, so everybody was at our house except for Isaac. Isaac's in Atlanta. Uh, he started a marketing company, he's in Atlanta, but everybody else was there. So everybody's in that, that age group, okay? And <laughs> all we talk about, so let me just go back and say this. Most families say, we talk about everything but two subjects religion and politics and in the whole family that's the only thing about <laughs> is religion and politics and so for, for two hours around the patio all we talked about was current events all we talked about was the political landscape all we talked about was the presidency the senate my son samuel's going to law school at unlv and he's having to do it online so he's there and he's had his first week of law school and I just cracked up at one point and said, yeah, we, the whole family, we really talk about these really, really uh, vanilla subjects that are just like really meaningless. <laughs> and everybody was cracking up. But here's what was interesting. So yeah. one of my sons said, so, so my, a, a son-in-law asked my son, so where are you in relation to economics? Because of something that he had just said. He made an interesting point. Now, all my kids love Jesus with all their heart. All my kids are passionate about the kingdom of God. All my kids are uh, leading someone to the Lord, usually some point in their life. My 18-year-old my has a Bible study around the fire pit every Monday night. About 20 kids come to that. Uh, my son Samuel, who's at DU, one of the most liberal schools in Colorado. Um, was University of Denver, of, for those who are outside the state, by the way. Yeah, Go Denver ahead. University. Yeah. He was there as a piano performance major. So he's, so believe it or not, he's in the music department at the most, one of the most liberal schools in Colorado. So talk about liberal on top of liberal. So <laughs> he, he was a senator there as, as far as running for office. He was, he had a Bible, a couple Bible studies he did. One was Catholic, one was Protestant, which was interesting. And then he was a part of Turning Point. That's where he met Candace Owen. And uh, knows, you know, I don't think he's met Charlie Kirk, but he, I know he's had some associated with Charlie. So that's how conservative he is. So yeah. here's, what, here's his response to my son-in-law's questions. He said, I'm more left economically and I'm more right morally. And what he meant by that is that he is, 
he personally, as a Gen Zer, he would he would say that we need to be taxing. We should be putting heavy taxes on all these billionaires. He is. He just. He feels strongly that they're just getting away with um, with 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 the, with the house, the home, the furniture, and everything in America. And then he cites all these examples. I think about six billionaires basically run the world. And, uh, yeah. he, and he and he also knows that they that Amazon and many of those major corporations hardly pay any taxes. I mean, they just know how to get out of it. And so he's a big believer in that. So he would he would tend to be a higher tax guy for the very, very wealthy. And then he would be for cutting taxes for the middle class. And we know, and he says, I don't, he says, I'm not a big believer in trickle down economics in relation to that level, that high level. And he would, and he would, he would hearken us back to Teddy Roosevelt and the whole idea of monopolies. And he feels like these people have a monopoly. Somebody's got to have the guts in the Republican Party to break them up. So that's his perspective. But then on things like uh, abortion and things on moral issues, spiritual issues, he'd be strongly Republican. So here, so that's, so that's the new world order, right? I mean, that's, that's what's happening is that he's, he's, I think contextual, he like, he hates this. He, he hates this. And I mean, uh, he, he hates the fact that people are just so one party. Okay. That they just, they just take, they just take what he could, he says they drink the Kool-Aid mm-hmm. and then they just all go with that. Why can't there be more critical thinking within, he, he doesn't care about the Democrats. He, he would never be a Democrat on any place, but as a Republican, in 2020, the question would be, why aren't we rethinking some of the stuff of the past as we readapt it to the present and to the future with the new information that we now have about these particular areas? So he believes that Republicans don't think. They don't, they don't constantly think about ways to revolutionize society and revolutionize culture. I tend to to agree with him to a certain extent that even as conservatives, we're still conserving, conserving, conserving. And as a missionary, as being a missionary, I look at things missiologically. So mm-hmm. I'm always contextualizing, even a sermon on Sunday, knowing that I've got this church that's full of young people. I've got a church full of young people and young adults, but I've also got older folks too, you know? So I'm yeah. always, I'm always buffering things that I say with the audience that I'm in because I'm not trying to hit just one audience. And, and I think that's the struggle is contextualization politically. I, I agree. Listen, I, I take a very libertarian fiscal conservative approach to this uh, where I see just the opposite. Uh, it's, it's not so much that the big corporations are taking advantage that the small guy is not protected. And the sure. corporatism that's there, Absolutely. but but I I don't bring that up just so much to counter him when he's not here to defend himself. I'm right. saying that to say I think that we do a bad job. Um, those who want to engage with what's going on here are very concerned. Uh, we do a bad job having these discussions, putting them together in context, seeing what's good from the past, what's bad. I mean, we draw from the word of God if you're a Christian. 
that's as far past as you can get in, in many cases. And, and so, uh, but, but so where, where's the kernel of truth? Where's right. the thing, where's that foundation that we need to go to? And we're struggling with that in a big way. I mean, at what, so you're a pastor and, and by the way, a lot of people don't know you, that a lot of people that are going to hear this podcast haven't heard of you. Not everyone. I mean, anyone in Colorado Christians possibly have, but you've been involved with some very significant things in this country. You know, I remember when, uh, Ted Haggard had his major fall many, many years ago. You were on the ministry team with Dr. Dobson's uh, cousin, H.B. London, and others just to really try to help that situation. And quite frankly, I think it saved a lot of problems. You've been involved with this kind of thing in ways, particularly being one of the biggest ministry cities, I guess, in the country. Um, you, You get connected into this. What is it that in your mind you see as the real problem a dr- trying to get to this place that you were just describing amongst pastors in this country and leaders of, of a larger scale? Well, you know, you remember the story we heard with 9-11 in relation to Flight 93. Yeah. And that was the flight where um, basically these um, jihadists, as it were, came with their box cutters, got into the captain's, um, or were trying to get to the captain. I think one of them took over and was flying the plane or something. I don't remember all the details, but it's because the people rose up, right? So they rose up and they attacked um, that pilot who had taken over and killed the, the original pilot, that they crashed the plane and it did not go into the Pentagon. Um, yeah. That's my understanding, uh, what I recall. Capital. It was going to go, they had it targeted the, the capital. capital. Okay, yeah. there you go. Yeah. So um, that's what we have going on right now. So what we have right now is we have a new world order, a group of terrorists, as it were, that are trying to basically take out our pilot, take out the co-pilot, take out um, the cabinet. I mean, they're, I mean, they are after it all, right? And then what we have is we have churches that are kind of singing kumbaya in, in the back, but we're on the plane. I mean, this country's our plane. And if we don't do something, then that plane's going to crash as we know it, or it's going to be reinvented in a whole new way. And so you can have all the revival meetings you want to have in the coach class, but these guys are moving out. And so I think the biggest thing right now, Jim, is two things. And one is that there needs to be powerful, powerful prayer that's happening. I do believe from, from the dream I told you about that I can take time to explain because that dream really got my attention a year ago. Uh, the second Chronicle 714 dream that we've got, we're called to a new level of prayer. But secondly, I guess it's, there, there's, I guess there's three parts to it. I'd say three parts. One is prayer in the local churches, just massive believing strategic prayer. Number two is the continuous proclamation of the kingdom of God on earth. But then third, there really does need to be public policy ministries in every church. So we just started one and you know, uh, Amy Lathan. And so Amy has agreed as of a few days ago to take up Um, us developing a public policy ministry in our church. And what I mean by that 
is that we are studying all the different political things that are happening in our city and in our state. And then we are going to do everything we can to get the right candidates elected. So starting with school board, city council, mayor, um, the, the Congress in our state, you know, I think that, and you know, Jim, better than I do. It just seems to me when I look at the Republican party that we've tended to make the presidency um, like the big, big goal. And we all know that all politics is local and you're yep. in city council right there in Woodland Park, which is exactly what I'm talking about. We need to have Bible believing, word rooted, uh, spirit filled, um, conservative minded, constitutionally based men and women in these local areas. Because we went uh, Wednesday, Wednesday last week, 10 pastors and myself, we went to Sheriff Bill Elder's office. We had already gotten gone ahead and he was so excited. We wanted to just go pray for him. We were going to pray a blessing over our sheriff. And he was so moved by that, that he had his whole command staff there. And so his command staff of, of his top 10 leaders were all there. And he wanted us to pray for all of them. So we came in and prayed for them. And then he shared kind of his testimony of knowing Christ and what a difference that's made in his life. He starts all his meetings with prayer. He always has a devotional at the beginning of each week by one of his chaplains who comes in and does a devotional before his command staff. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But here's what I do know is that, and this is what brought all this up, was two months ago, uh, Governor Polis said that everybody mandated mask. Everybody has to wear a mask. And so my group of pastors that we're all good, close friends, we started texting back, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And we just decided that what we would do, and we decided what we we're going to do. And I won't say what we did, but anyway, it was not exactly, let's just yeah. say, exactly <laughs> what the governor wanted to do. But anyway, then on Facebook, Bill Elder, our sheriff, came out and said, I'm not, I'm not enforcing it. He said, I don't think it's constitutional. I don't think it's legal. So I'm not going to enforce it. And he said that if a shop owner calls him and a guy's come in or families come in, they're not wearing a mask or whatever, and they will not put one on. So they say, we're going to boot them out of the shop and they won't leave. Then I'll come in and give a citation for trespassing, but I'm not going to do anything that has to do with wearing a mask. That's a personal decision. Well, that's how powerful the sheriff is. Probably yeah. one of the most powerful political positions in any county is who your sheriff is. And so he, so it's important that we realize that politics is all local and that's where the, and we're called a local church. So I feel like that the biggest responsibility every pastor should have is for their local church and their local community and their local county. Think about it, Jim. If, uh, you know, I think there's 400 churches or something like that in El Paso County. So if, if, if even a third, if just a third of those churches got mobilized in a, in a powerful way and we were united together over some of the big issues, oh my goodness, we could change this nation like that. You know, it's been that way for a long time. Uh, David Barton, a good friend of mine. By the way, so people around the country know this is El Paso County, Colorado. And Bill Elders, the sheriff, sir. But uh, David Barton, wall builders, good friend of mine, has been talking about this for a lot of years, and we've really ignored it, that, uh, you know, everyone thought that evangelicals took over the electorate in the 1990s. 
And there's no doubt it was a major influence, but they were far from doing anything like that because statistics show no more, no more than 20, 25% are actually out there voting of, of, of eligible voters, which brings in uh, something just to dig into this a little more, because I agree with you. If people of goodwill, if, if Christians in their various communities were determined to change things around, uh, they could, because they got the numbers to do it. Um, what, how, how do you think a small group of people that are protesting, Antifa and and Black Lives Matters protesters, they're doing this violence stuff. It's a very small percentage of this population that's doing this, and they're having a massive impact. How much more for good? Um, so let's dig down into this, because I'm sure there are a good five or six different things to really uh, pick at here. What, what are the ways in culture that the church, what are the things that the church is responsible for? Because I, I think there's a real misunderstanding. By the way, to set this up a little bit, back up a little bit, you know, I've been, I've been saying, I spent eight years in Capitol Hill in D.C. as a chief of staff. I know a lot of congressmen, because there's another factor to this too. I have to tell you that the uh, – Majority of congressmen who claim that they're Christians, in my mind, or the, that I've heard of, they vote like Satan. I hate, to, I hate to describe it any different way. They vote for this massive spending. They don't vote constitutionally. So when a real constitutional issue comes up, they're not willing to assert that. And by the way, it's not that the, the Constitution's the Bible. It's not. It's the guideline. It's the legal foundation for this country. And we're not willing to assert it. And it also does not contradict uh, good principles as well. So, you know, it's a good document. We don't worship at the Constitution, but it is absolutely fundamentally a good, sound document for freedom. And I think God wants that in societies. I really believe that that was, is the best society. But these guys are not willing, and gals are often not willing to with, we encourage to vote this way. I worked for Thomas Massey, uh, congressman from Kentucky. He literally had the entire world against him when he called, uh, require, uh, called for a quorum to vote on that $2.3 trillion CARES Act, that they were just going to voice vote across the floor. Unconstitutional. The, it says that you must have a quorum to do business. He took the stand. The whole world was literally against him. That kind of courage I don't see enough of. But I, it's also got to happen in the churches. I think a, we want to see a lot of these people get elected to these various levels of government. But I know where I'm elected, you know, I've got the whole city against me sometimes because I'm trying to assert these principles. It's a challenge. So it's, it's a twofold thing. We've got to take the steps. You've got to have the courage to back it up. So what, with that background, what are the things that, that Christians absolutely should be doing in culture as basic principles? Yeah. Well, we're in Nehemiah right now in, at the road. I'm going verse by verse through Nehemiah. And so you see, um, first of all, I would say that anybody can make a difference. I mean, Nehemiah is a cupbearer of the king. And, you know, we think of that now as maybe, maybe a, a, a comfortable, um, he's in the palace, he knows the king, has a very, very special position. But, you know, you didn't have a lot of seniority uh, with cupbearers. Um, they, they tended to die pretty early, right? That's right. The way, you, the way you did Persian elections is you poison your opponent. Right. So, uh, so I, you know, whatever we think about that, the reality is this, is that 
he did not have a strategic position any more than uh, other people that were in that court. But the point is, God can use anybody. So first of all, I would say that wherever we are in our journey, whether we're a carpenter or whether we're a congressman, that God has a way of taking very common people who maybe aren't even that super educated and using them in mighty ways to do new things. And we look at the 12, the Lamb's 12 would certainly be the greatest example of that. So first of all, I would say God can use anybody. So the church is full of nobodies that in God's eyes are somebodies. And that if God will plant, if we'll be allowed, we'll allow God to plant in our heart his burdens, then he will start to raise up a little army. And, it, and, and I would say, secondly, it doesn't take a lot of people. It doesn't take a lot of people who passionately care about something. As far as what I think are the big issues before us right now, um, wow, we really are, we really are a country built on liberty. And, and built on a constitution and a bill of rights that is under severe attack. And so I, I really believe what I'm doing at the road, um, being led by the Holy Spirit, really through going through Nehemiah, is rebuilding these torn down walls, rebuilding the gates. So what are the gates? You know, the gates in my mind are what we have classically called, you know, from Kuiper, when Kuiper first kind of talked about this as, you know, prime minister of Holland, he talked about these, I think we now classically might call them the seven mountains, like media and education and church and politics, et cetera. I think those are the gates, right? So I feel like those are the gates that are the ways in. So, so in a sense, again, I go back to the fact that if local churches would think local, and they would think about making an impact, and, and I'm calling it a kingdom of God revolution. I believe if we don't have a third great awakening, if we don't, I'm, and I'm calling it a, an awakening is, is for the church first, because you can't wake up something that's dead. So it's something that's still at least got a heartbeat, right? So I think the church is where the awakenings began. When it started with yeah. Northampton, Mass, Northampton, Massachusetts, with Jonathan Edwards and the first great awakening to... Uh, Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening in the early to mid 1800s leading up to the Civil War. We really haven't had a Third Great Awakening. Some might point to Azusa Street with the Pentecostal movement that occurred in LA as possibly a Third Great Awakening. But really, it's, whether we call it a Third or Fourth Great Awakening, I would call it a Kingdom of God revolution. And a Kingdom of God revolution begins locally. It yeah. begins with a local church. It begins with men and women who love Jesus. And a kingdom of God revolution, as I would define it, Jim, is a move of God that changes, literally does change, enough of the culture that it looks differently as a result of that. So when we look at Jerusalem in the first century, we see such a move of the spirit with 3,000 at first and then 5,000 and it grew and grew. And that's just men, you know, that's the way they counted back then. So we're trying to be 20 or 30,000 people in Jerusalem at that time. They were majorly affected to the point where we get to Acts 17. And it says these people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And it was, it was actually a literal fear in the authorities Roman authorities and Jewish authorities 
that the people that they were now calling Christians had come there also. And it shook the world. And I believe God can do that again. I believe he wants to do that again. And I believe that we can see consistently throughout history that God moves in revival ways or revolutionary ways. And it's not a lot of people. It's, it's a few people that have a burden for it. It begins with prayer. It begins with the courage to speak out. And then it also is, is strategic in that there's a strategic plan to start moving into these particular areas of culture. These are the gates. So if you right. remember Nehemiah 1 and 2, the gates are burned up and the walls right. are falling down. And, and when you get in Nehemiah 2, halfway through Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah comes there and he doesn't even tell anybody what he's going to do. He just goes in and gets on his horse with a few good men. And he actually goes at night so none of the nobles can see him. None of the leaders in Jerusalem can see him. And he, and he assesses the situation. I think what he was assessing, Jim, is are the foundations strong enough to be built upon? Can we build enough? Is there enough left of the foundation? And I think that's really where we're at right now in America is are there enough people who believe that the foundations that this country was built on are strong enough for us to rebuild the walls. Because if we don't, then it's a different strategy. I actually believe we do. And I actually believe that this is, could be the greatest days and the greatest opportunity the church has ever known. And I look at, you know, if you saw Darkest Hour, uh, the movie Darkest Hour about Winston yeah. Churchill, beautiful metaphor to me of where many pastors should see themselves at and standing up for the rebuilding of their culture. I mean, they were just, they were just up against a wall and they, and they truly were all alone. FDR had his hands tied uh, with Congress. He could not get involved. And even the ships that they were sending supplies to were getting uh, blown up with U-boats left and right. Yep. So he really was alone. And yet what you see with Churchill is a constant optimism a constant optimism. He would just come out and he'd walk out of, of, of Downing Street. He'd come out of the bunker and there were the people, you know, and, and as the story goes, flattened, you know, flattened. I think 67,000 people were killed through the bombings. And really London was flattened by about the 20th day of the Blitzkrieg by the Nazis. And yet he would interview people. He talked to people. People were so positive. We're going to win. You know, and there was just this overall optimism that came from the heart of Churchill. Well, yeah. I mean, that's our job. I mean, that's what pastors should be doing. But then we've got to be rebuilding. And, and I think that the call upon the church is prayer, proclamation, and public policy. And we've got to get involved. And we've got to, and we've got to make sure that we're looking at this with a contextualization understanding that it's not 1985, it's 2020. What's God saying to us right now in 2020? And every pastor has to grapple with it. I was just uh, emailing just before you came on um, a leading voice in our city. I won't name who it is right now, but I just got, well, let me just say this. But when I was driving in for this interview, I was on the phone with um, a leading lawyer here in the city to talk to him about a burden that I have, he's a really wonderful spirit-filled lawyer. 
with another leading um, Christian uh, in our city with the idea of mobilizing a conference, might even be a clandestine secret conference, to come together and talk about the church's role moving forward in our nation. And, uh, and I was thinking we should call it rebuilding the walls and kind of mm-hmm. use a Nehemiah metaphor. So that'll be what I'll follow up on after we're done here to begin to that discussion. But just think if we could gather 500 to 1,000 pastors from around the country and we had three or four key initiatives that we were going to take on, even a tiny, tiny percentage, you know, less than 1% of all the churches in America. But if we were to have these three or four initiatives in our local environment, what a difference it could make. You know, um, the church has been disengaging so much from culture and politics for so many decades that how can you not see that we would go down the path that we've had? I mean, I think, and by the way, all culture, certainly all Western culture, that uh, has remained in place, if ever, because uh, the, the church has been involved for centuries Absolutely. In engaging in it directly. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all Christians, but, but academically, uh, in the arts and the sciences, yeah. uh, without people of deep Christian faith, we yeah. would not have had the advancements in society and, and in science and in so many areas that we've right. had. You know, but, Isaac Newton was greatly criticized because he really put about two-thirds of his entire academic effort into theolo- theological pursuits and not scientific ones. Yeah. And, and he's, he's possibly the most brilliant mathematician of all time. He yeah. created a new form of mathematics, <laughs> That's right. but was deeply devoted and dedicated to Christ in his personal life. Yeah. And, and I don't see in, in large ways people of that sort of commitment and religious faith uh, engaged in these important areas. And, and we wonder why we're so upset about social media giants uh, seeming to direct where our speech is going to go. We get all mad about that. We don't like right. them shutting things down. Well, why aren't you involved in that sort of endeavor? Well, you haven't been. You've been running away from it. This is why I, I really ask the question of people, what should church, people in, in the church, people of faith, what should they actually be doing in society? And these are the things. We should have Christians who are some of the best coders in, in the country developing these online technologies. And, and it's not, that we're, not to shut everybody else down, but to provide the alternative. We should be on the cutting edge of all this. And, and we're not. And we've abandoned it. And politics is one of those areas. I know. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the reason is, is because we're lazy. Um, it's just easy. It's just, I mean, honestly, I feel this tug all the time to just kind of go along. And um, it's not in my nature to go along. So that, so it helps me that I'm wired a little bit different. You know, Nehemiah was a man of action. And, you know, the, we, we tend to get pastors who are teachers, academians, went to seminary, love God's word. I'm talking about evangelicals, conservative evangelicals. 
Um, and then, you know, in the more of the liberal camp, you tend to have more, again, kind of academians, maybe more philosophers. I always think, because mm -hmm. I grew up Lutheran, I grew up neo-Orthodox, liberal Lutheran, then really came to know the Lord at college at University of Georgia, and then went into a more fundamentalist conservative group with Campus Crusade, then got involved more with the charismatic movement with Vineyard, and kind of would consider myself sort of a conservative, evangelical, charismatic, low church kind of um, high praise sort of church now. Okay, whatever yeah. that is. So that's right. kind of a hybrid of all these things, right? Well, if you think about the liberal churches, the pastors, I find they're very pastoral. They're actually more counselors. I'd say in most of your mainline churches, you have pastors that lead that are kind of counselors. And their messages are sort of philosophical. They're really built on psychology and peppered with a little bit of Bible. Then in the, in the conservative evangelical church, you have strong academic uh, verse by verse in some cases, but very teacher oriented and teacher focused. What you don't have in either one is strong leaders. You don't have that many leaders that are in the church. So what happens, I think, is that young men, young women that are coming up and they're gifted in the area of leadership, they have to find leadership somewhere else. So they go into these other areas and it's devoid of a spiritual side to it. So yeah, they become coders and they are Christians um, or they are uh, in the realm of science or, 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 law, or the legal field. But it's, it's almost like there's this, this separation, we call it about separation of church and state, there's sort of separation of church and vocation. And so because of that, there's this duplicity in their lives and you just kind of pay lip service by walking to church, coming into church and you sit down and you listen to a message that kind of encourages your heart a little bit. But then where, where the rubber really meets the road is Monday through Friday at your job. And so I think again, we, we've got to rethink the worldview of the pulpit yeah. because these black robed men who are part of the revolutionary war, um, you know, really kind of with a sort of with a Bible in one hand and a musket in the other. That's right. And, uh, and so then what you have in Nehemiah is you have a trowel in one hand and a spear or a sword in the other. Very clear in Nehemiah 4. That that's what they did. So I think, I mean, my prayer would be God raise up a different kind of pastor. Yeah. In, in the, in the third millennium, would you raise up? And I pray about it almost every day that God, you, you raise up men who really do have a sword in one hand and a Bible in the other. And what I mean by sword is that they're strategically thinking through changing culture in their city. Mm -hmm. Going after it in their city. I mean, it, that, it's above my pay grade to, to talk about president and Congress, even though Doug Lamborn, our congressman, goes to our church. So, of course, I love Doug and he and Jeannie and I and Liz, you know, we take walks together. We talk and, and pray together. He has his prayer meeting for his, uh, his leadership team here at the road uh, first Monday of every month. So love that. But, but he's a congressman. He's called to that. But I'm talking about just the regular guy. Yeah. who's in a seat out there that sends his three kids to school and they're getting taught, you know, the queer initiative um, by coming down from Polis. So Liz got up on Sunday, this Sunday, and she read through the new initiatives 
coming down from Polis in education and you, you heard a, a, a visible and verbal gasp go through our church because nobody knew about it. Yeah. Nobody knew about it. Oh, but yeah. we did. So that's the reason we've got to have public policy. That's the sword. So that's the new sword that I believe the church has to have. And because we are citizens of the kingdom of God and we are citizens of the kingdom of this earth. And nobody uh, probably wrote better than Augustine when he, in his, in his famous book, City of God. And so those got, those intersect, you know, the, city, yes, absolutely. the kingdom, if you're only kingdom, you know, we laughingly say, you know, I don't want to be all, you know, so kingdomly good that I'm no earthly good, you know, but, yeah. but being, seeing the responsibility of both and one empowering the other. Yeah. That's what the no, signers, man. that's what the signers of the Declaration <clears throat> of Independence were over half of them had some kind of theological background or theological training. So they really were either deists or pretty strong Christians. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, at that point, the uh, deists and the uh, uh, Christians at the time, they were, um, they kind of made a, they had a different theological perspective that, that was pretty significant, but they really made a truce to work together uh, because they believe some of these ultimate issues they really believed in. I mean, I, now I, I will tell you, uh, we, you, the kingdom of God aspect or understanding should be very strong in combination with a very strong understanding of how that relates into culture. You had a significant problem, another Old Testament story that I refer to a lot when I'm trying to talk to people about the role of government um, is um, 1 Samuel 8. And you had the children of Israel all upset because they saw that uh, Samuel was going away off the scene. They were concerned about his sons. We were in the period of judges. By the way, what I say is kind of the first uh, liberty-minded form of government was the period under the judges where you didn't have a big formal government. When you had disputes, you just got together and you um, – you know, you, you got together with a judge and someone figured it out. You moved along. Freedom. Everyone lived their lives. All the good choices they made, they, they got to take advantage of. All the bad choices they made. This kind of would be my dispute with your son. You know, it's like <laughs> the, the problem is there's no downside to the choices. It's all upside for these wealthy people who, you know, take such advantage of things because they're taking advantage of the government. Well, that, the governmental system in Israel at the time was not that way. You either failed or succeeded based upon your efforts alone. So they get, but they see this change coming, the children of Israel in 1 Samuel 8, then they want a king. And I think it's really interesting because when they got together with Samuel, they said, hey, we're worried about your son, so put a king over us. And it's like, uh, sorry, <laughs> you're, what you're doing is you're going to have just keep the same bad situation, just make it worse by giving them the uh the, so this new man this huge authority and i want to read a verse there and i want you to respond to it so first samuel 8 7 and the lord said to samuel obey the voice of the people and that they in what they say to you having a king for they have not rejected you but they've rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day i brought them out of egypt even to this day forsaking this is the part people don't think about with this verse, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also 
doing to you. Show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And by the way, when you go into this next bit of verses, it's like reading the newspaper today. It's all the stuff that we complain about. Mm -hmm. Christians and people of faith do uh, of uh, other you know similar face like Jews and and others they they forget what's really going on here and they're not willing to fight for limited government so that they could be free to live their lives right. and we've constrained ourselves so much and and I agree with you on this leadership question people have got to be we need leaders who are saying we're going to take it a different direction school boards are the biggest example of this. We have, you know, for people to be shocked at what your wife Liz read is is absolutely nuts. They have no idea what's been going on apparently because it's been happening around them for decades. It's nuts. We've got to change that orientation and what we're thinking. It takes courage to do it. Right, it does. And I think it takes takes awareness. And um, one of the things that Liz and I always talk about with our kids when we've been raising them is that knowledge knowledge is your friend knowledge is always your friend so get as much knowledge as you can so research 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 study 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 look at both sides a critical thinker knows both sides so well that they can argue both sides. that's actually what they train you and teach you in your first year of law school is critical thinking and the reality is none of that happens anymore that's just not happening anymore it's not happening in the home and it's not happening in education um because I think, I mean, really our success has probably become our greatest enemy is because we are comfortable, you know? And I think part of what's, we're having this discussion now, cause I'm, I'm very uncomfortable. I feel very uncomfortable these days. I'm very, very burdened. I'm very concerned as I see the riots and all that's happening, very concerned. So I think sometimes that's what is the impetus for us to start moving out and sometimes comfort and that really, actually, the success of our limited form of government that we have had uh, is our greatest enemy because we don't continue to, to hone it. We don't continue to develop it. So, you know, I think what you're talking about, about the generation of uh, the greatest generation dying off um, and kind of where we're at today is I think there's mom- we've had momentum, Jim right? So if you're going down I-25 and you're going 150 miles an hour, and then you basically take your foot off the pedal, you're going to go miles and miles and miles with the momentum that you had when you did have your foot on the accelerator. And I think it shows how great and how powerful and how wonderful our constitution, our bill of rights are. Oh yeah. That we've now had momentum without really having our foot on the accelerator for probably two or three decades. Yeah. And, and now it's running out of steam. It's running out of steam and there's a new car on the road and that new car is called socialism. And socialism, is again, and socialism is step one to communism. Yeah, and even that's right. though anybody who knows history knows that there's really never been any successful governments that were, that were communist People don't even, they're not even aware of that. And so we have this tiny little group, like you said, I really agree with this. You know, it's just this tiny group that's involved in all of these riots and all the upheaval that we have, but they've created fear in the hearts of people. And we're going to have to be, we've got to stand up and be more courageous and re, restart rebuilding the walls. 
So as you're observing this and you mentioned earlier, you had a dream uh, that led, led you back to, you know, a really common verse, I guess, that people don't spend a lot of time thinking about first Chronicles 417. Tell me about that. You know, I'm, by the way, I'm getting a lot of emails and sometimes I'm rather suspicious of it, uh, of something prophetic that someone <laughs> was saying. And, you know, I get, I get suspicious of it to the extent that people get emotional sometimes, and then they act out of that emotional in these er- that emotion in these areas. But th- I, 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 I know that there's something that God's wanting to do in this country. Tell us about that dream. Tell us how it relates and what you're doing about it. So in April of 2019, I had this dream, very vivid dream, and I saw a a set of buildings, uh, a cityscape against a white sky. So it looked like early morning, either early morning or late evening, and you got your white sky, and and all the buildings are dark, and I can see these clouds, like a big storm rolling in. And then the Lord speaks in the dream, ominous times are coming. And... There's this moment in my spirit like, okay, what is it? Dream doesn't say. And then written across, writing right across those buildings in white letters is 2 Chronicles 7.14. So, and then I woke up. 2 Chronicles 7.14, for those who wouldn't know, is this verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so when COVID hit, when the pandemic hit, when everything closed down, God reminded me of that dream. And so it's very clear in this dream that it's a responsibility only of the church it's only people who are called by his name that can do this, that they would humble themselves, seek God's face, pray, and turn, turn from their wicked ways. In other words, repentance, that God has given us a formula in which he says he will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sins and he will heal their land. Jeremiah 18 is another interesting passage, which I think correlates to this. And I think I shared with you, Jim, the other day that we were planning the Sean Foyt outreach. I had the leadership team here at the road of pastors. And when one of our Latino pastors began to share of this sense of a civil war coming to our country, we broke into prayer. We just stopped all our planning, went right into prayer. And this was the passage that came out. This is Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. So I don't understand all of this, you know, from the perspective of a of a New, New Testament dispensation. This is obviously Old Testament. But here's what I do know is it does seem consistent throughout not only biblical history, but church history, that there come these times in the life of a nation and even in the life of an individual. And that sometimes that's helpful for you that are listening, that you think in terms of your own life, that 
you come to a place in your life where catastrophe is right at your doorstep. It might be a divorce. It might be you're considering suicide. It might be the loss of a job or the loss of your family or everything that you believe in. And in that moment, you know, you cry out to God and you humble yourself and you repent of some stuff in your life that you need to repent of. And then God shows up in a supernatural, miraculous way. He begins to break the chains off your life and you begin a new life in Christ because he sets you free from the bondage that you had before. I think that's true in a nation. If there comes a place in a nation where you're so humbled by what's going on and you're so maybe even fearful of the consequences of what's going on, that you really do humble yourself before God. You ask his forgiveness, even if, even if those sins were not your personal sins. We see this in Daniel chapters 9 and 10, where he repents for Israel. We see this with Jeremiah here in Jeremiah 18. Well, they didn't turn. In Jeremiah, they didn't turn, and they went into captivity for 70 years under the Babylonians. And so you, you're mentioning judges. Well, as we know, the nation eventually uh, broke in two, kind of a civil war, and then there was a nation of Israel, and there was a nation of Judah, and by the fact that it was divided, that's when the uh, Babylonians could come in, the Assyrians could come in and take it over, and so um, I believe that God gave me the dream because it's, it's a, what we would call a warning dream. It's a warning of what the enemy has planned for America and what God is sharing his heart with us could happen in America. And I'm sure there's tens of thousands of men and women across the world, but especially in the United States of America who had the same dream or had a similar dream in a similar way that he's waking us up. And sometimes I like to say that you need a rude awakening to get a great awakening. And I feel like we're at a rude awakening right now. And God wants to bring a great awakening. No, listen, uh, I've heard people yeah. Of people having these dreams. This amazes me. And, and about the same time period, by the way. Um, but here's my concern. We talked about this the other day. Um, by my estimate, you know, I'm kind of putting my thumb out. I don't, I can't, I don't have an actual objective measure for this, but just a sense of what I, more anecdotal, uh, admittedly, but I don't get a sense that 20, 30% of the church is really oriented right now in this country, at least towards being what they're supposed to be acting as they ought to act involved in the community. In fact, to the level that you're talking about, I wouldn't even put 30% on it to be candid right now in terms of churches. I'm really concerned about that. I actually see a whole lot of um, really weird theological perspectives and teachings, actually, maybe candidly, not theological because theology is a study of God. I think it's something other than the study of God. Uh, Emphases that go in the wrong direction, sometimes entirely capitulating to where the culture is. I just saw a survey uh, a couple days ago that said um, 32% of self-identified evangelicals didn't see Jesus as God, but they saw him as a good teacher, to which I replied on Facebook, well, it looks like the church is a third smaller than we thought it was beforehand, you know, because it's that serious a problem. Um, So 
why are pastor what's the what's the situation with pastors right now in reality what's honestly going on and why what what needs what needs to happen how how are we going to change them to doing what they they ought to do not well, not change them but how do we influence that how do we call that i think we have to call that out yeah so what's your what's your obsession well, I mean, assessment well, of that first of all first of all i'm not a national leader i don't have national influence so all i can do is speak locally and um, and I just would say that the pastors that I'm talking to um, are getting fired up, and it's a very very small group here in Colorado Springs. Um, others are just they they they've remained closed. Their churches have remained closed. Um, recent barn report is that one out of five, one out of five churches will um, close in the next three months because of what's happened with COVID. I don't think that's a bad thing, by the way. So I, maybe it may sound a little yeah. odd for me as a pastor to say this, but I don't think the closing of one fifth of our churches is a bad thing. If COVID, right. if, if a little pandemic that, in my opinion, is like, I don't know, so minuscule. I hate to say yeah. it, but, you know, the CDC just came out with a report on Friday that only 6%, <laughs> only 6% of the reported deaths of COVID-19 were just from COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. All the rest, 94% are pre-existing condition. This is not, this is, I, it just doesn't take a brain scientist to understand what's really going on. It's been very uh, politicized and uh, weaponized, but we know that. Well, if that, this little pandemic is causing your church to go down, then I would hasten to say to churches, Matthew 16, 18, Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I have given you the keys of the kingdom of God, the keys of the kingdom of God to bind and to loose. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so we have authority and spiritual authority. And most of the church doesn't know that. And so as a result of that, Jim, we are going to see I think a pretty significant shaking, which I didn't even get to. I'm changing. I'm, I'm running out of fuel mm, on the old computer. So I just went to my main desk. And I'll turn it where the window's not blinding yeah, you. That's good. That's good. Um, but uh, Haggai 2, 6, and 7 says this. And this was when, when, when COVID hit, remember that the second Chronicle 714 was a year ago. But this became in juxtaposition to Haggai 2, Haggai 2, 6 and 7, where, it, where God says, I will shake the nations, I will shake the nations to bring them to the desire of the nations. So God is literally shaking the nations. I can't think historically of anything that has shaken all of the world, like COVID, at least in the last 100 years of, of maybe what we call modern history. So he's shaking the nations to bring a kingdom of God revolution. That's what's going on. And here's, here's what I believe, Jim. And it may sound like a downer, but it's not. It's actually an upper to me. Um, and that is this, that I think we are going to see churches closing left and right. These are churches that God did not build. These are not churches built on the rock. They're not built on the word. They can't withstand the onslaught of demonic activity that is such at a high level. And so they're going to begin to just die out. We're going to see more and more pastors dropping out of the pastorate. They can't handle the pressure. And guess what? 
God's going to raise up a new kind of pastor. God's going to raise up new kinds of leaders who are uh, warriors. You got to have warrior pastors. You got to be a worshiper and a warrior. We need Davids right now. We need, we don't need Saul's, you know, David had to replace Saul. And so yeah. we're going to see David's replacing Saul's. And remember, if you remember about Saul, I mean, Saul had everything. He was tall. He was good looking. He came from a, a family of prominence. He, he was picked by Samuel, which was the capital P prophet of Israel. David's a nobody. He's like a nobody, nobody. He's just a shepherd kid. He's probably 13 years old, we believe, um, when he came out into the Valley of Elah. And what you have there, Jim, is you have the Valley of Elah. And, and, I, and I like to say this, and in my book, Worshiper Warrior, I unpack this in one of the chapters, is that what David came into in the Valley of Elah wasn't Goliath. Goliath wasn't the issue. It was Goliath thinking that was the issue. So here's yeah. all of Israel ready to fight the Philistines, and yet they're so, they're so full of fear with Goliath-like thinking. Here comes David, who's first of all, he's a worshiper before he's a warrior. He's got a God-sized imagination. So you can either have a Goliath-sized imagination, or you can have a God-sized imagination. And most of the church today has a Goliath-sized imagination, which is overwhelmingly consumed with Goliath, the Goliath. And David comes in, and this is where I'm coming from, is that we've got to have a God-sized imagination with how powerful and how wonderful and how awesome and how mighty God is. That happens through prayer. And it also comes through strategic planning, beginning to start taking back taking the initiative and taking the offensive. And uh, one of my sons, one of my other sons last night, we were talking, he's a very, very uh, successful financial advisor. He's just blown up his company with what he's doing. And he says, you know what bugs me about Christians? And I said, yeah, I already know what you're going to say. Because <laughs> yeah, I talk about it all the time. We'll, we'll have a cigar and we'll sit there and we'll talk about it. But he said, why, why do Christians never take the offensive? Yeah. Why are they always defensive? Why are they always complaining about everything, but they don't do anything? And he's like a, he's a guy that goes out and makes things happen. He's a Nehemiah yeah. leader. I call him a Nehemiah leader because he's a man of action. Nehemiah, he, he, he wept before the Lord. He fasted and prayed. He waited four months. Between chapter one and chapter two is four months. He waits four months before he approaches the king. When he approaches the king, this guy is ready to go. He is ready. He has planned it out. He saw it through. He's going to know where the wood's going to come from. He has a strategic plan. And then he works his tail off. And in 52 days, they rebuild the walls. It is years. Yeah. Years have passed. And the walls have just lay there, crumbled, because there was no Nehemiah. Do you think Nehemiah is the only guy that God calls? Right. He, called, he probably called a thousand different leaders. They never, they never responded. Nehemiah is a man of action. He responds. So, Jim, I believe we need a new kind of pastor. I think we need a kind of pastor who's a leader. He needs to be a Nehemiah, or he or she needs to be a Nehemiah leader. And they need to, they have this perspective of I'm here, I'm called by God to rebuild walls. I'm going to rebuild walls in my city. You know, I, I look at this story with uh, young David heading out to the battlefield, just to pick up on where, what you were talking about there with Goliath. They had no idea what the real battle was at all. Yeah. The real battle was not with Goliath. Yeah. I think, I think uh, 
uh, in God's providence, he sent David to take on Goliath directly uh, to kind of break their shibboleth, this thing that they had put up as a, you know, uh, I think we were talking about this the other day. If they, all they had to do was go out into battle. Goliath, I mean, when you go into battle, people are going to die. So some people were going to be killed by Goliath, but Goliath was not who they were fighting. They were fighting that army. They were willing to undertake the terms of battle set by the Philistines, which was, okay, we're just going to send our guy out and you send one of your guys out. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's not what you do. I, I want to say this. When it comes to politics, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm going to be a bit indelicate here for some of the Christian li- uh, listeners, but I, I just want to say this directly. When I go, politics is war by other means. And I've engaged, as you know, you've known me for many, many years. I've been engaging that in a long time. This is kind of my fundamental way that I go into these political battles. It's Patton, from the Patton speech in the movie, you hear it. No bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. When your brother, I mean brother, when your son talks about why are Christians not on the offensive? Yeah. We're we're not willing to fight for what we think. And we're not willing to destroy those shibboleths that go out there. This is why God rebuked Israel in 1 Samuel 8 because they were still going after other gods. That's what they were thinking. I mean, what was happening in the book of Judges? Up and down and up and down because they'd worship God, and then they'd go down because they started worshiping idols and back and forth and back and forth. And, and by that time, now that they said they wanted a king, God was fed up with it. Fine. They keep, they keep doing this, so go ahead. Let's just let you see what's going to happen. In his providence, he allowed that. I think in some ways he's allowed that in the church, and COVID is one of the things recently – that was necessary to, to shake it. And I'm, I believe that if that, if people don't get the right attitude about the real, not just spiritual battle that we're in, but the battle as it relates to the battle that's taking place in this world while it's happening, we, we need to, to go engage with that. We need to uh, go after the Goliaths of culture, what's happening in Hollywood, what's happening in the media, I mean, I think a lot of people are inspired by Donald Trump going after the media, calling it fake news because they're tired of it. But let me, but like you say, the president's not the be all end all. We should all be doing that. And we're not doing it. And, and that ha- attitude has got to change. We don't have, an, from my estimation, as I said earlier, we don't have enough people in the church that are willing to lead people to go down that path, to encourage them to go down that path and to engage in that battle with plenty of warriors on the field. This is a serious thing, in my opinion. I, unless we overcome it, then, you know, kiss the country goodbye. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. And when we look at the Civil War, um, 1850s leading up to 1860, um, you know, the abolitionists, the abolitionist movement, which, by the way, was led by white men, um, yeah. you know, uh, Frederick Douglass being the exception, but really being bit by these horrible white men, um, they really created the Civil War because if they hadn't said what they were saying and, and had, hadn't built such a coalition in their churches against slavery, we wouldn't have had a Civil War. So yeah. the Civil War was really started by abolitionists in the North, not by the South and their, and their rebellion. They were responding to what was coming down against slavery. So it was very, the message was very, very clear in the North, biblically. 
in the South, their message, which they didn't view slavery as the real issue, their real issue was states' rights. And so their view that the federal government was coming in and taking away from them their fundamental right to work and commerce. So they were very, very clear about their viewpoint. The part where there was no clarity were the border states. So the border states, when you look at what pastors were teaching at that time, very ambiguous. They were very ambiguous. And the reason is, is because they had half of their churches were slave owners and half of their churches were non-slave owners, right? That's yeah. where we are today. We, yeah. That's where the church is today, is that we are a border state. We're kind of border state churches. And so because of that, we've got, you know, a third of our church might be Democrat or two thirds might be Republican or flip that around. So you've got this. So then what pastors do to keep growing their churches and to kind of keep everybody happy is they say, well, my main priority, which is true, this is absolutely true, is the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is my main thing and that that's, that's who I obey, that's who I worship, that's who I follow. Secondarily are the kingdoms of this earth, which I 100% agree with that. Um, but, where, but where the breakdown is, is when you have, and this was really Bonhoeffer's issue, with Germany and, and, and the National Socialist Party under Hitler as they came into power was, but the big but is when the kingdoms of this earth are calling you to either affirm or give lip service or even give um, passivity to things that are completely unrighteous and wrong, then you've crossed the line. Well, that's where it's hard. I think that's where it's really hard for pastors. And I know the tension myself, where you don't want to lose people in your congregation to Christ, possibly losing them to Christ by wrapping the American flag so much in their, or your view of the American flag in your gospel presentation, which by the way is interesting because that's the way Hitler basically tempted and then won over the, the Reich Church, which he, he, he renamed the Reich Church was kind of wrapping it in the, in the swastika. So with nationalism. Mm -hmm. So that's why the liberals really do have, they have a point. It's, it's, it's wrongly applied, but they do have a point that they see Hitler-esque aspects to Trump because he is a nationalist and they always fall back to that. But what, but what that, I think Jim, that that's the problem is that we don't have a clear understanding of the plane that we're flying in that you know just like you read in first samuel 8 is is exactly what i was saying in the metaphor at the beginning is that okay you don't want to do anything you don't want to do anything about the cockpit or where the plane's going well whoever takes over that cockpit is going to draft your kids into war it's going to tax you um and everything that you may it's gonna it's gonna literally completely change your life if you just sit by and sing kumbaya while the terrorists run up the aisle and take over the plane. So it really does matter. And I just hope and pray that there's a kingdom of God revolution that is built also in that kingdom of God, uh, impacting culture in the kingdoms of this earth. And so we're called to be kings and priests. We're, we're called in Genesis 1, 27 and 28 before the fall to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and increase. So I just happen to really believe 
that we have the image of God within us, Jim, and every person in my church and every person in your church has the image of God within them if they're saved and born again. And that part of our calling is to increase, is to bring the kingdom of God into the workplace and bring the kingdom. Very, very, very few people are going to be called to be pastors. Very, very, even yeah. fewer people are going to be called to be missionaries. But like Luther said in the Protestant Reformation, that, you know, that we are a kingdom of priests. We, we call it the priesthood of all believers, that great Protestant Reformation term. If we would just do that, if we would just start living that way and, and taking Sunday morning into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, that would be a kingdom of God revolution because even in that job when you're, when you're tempted to embezzle, when you're tempted to, you know, look at porn, when you're tempted to cheat, um, you would make a difference. You'd be salt and light. And that's what our calling is, is to be salt and light. And we've lost our saltiness and we saw, and we've, and we've lost the light of the gospel because we let the culture impact us in the church more than the church impacting the culture. So as we wrap it up here, um, maybe give a, something like a, a closing understanding of the kingdom of God revolution you're hoping would happen and, and then tell people how they need to stay in contact with you. Well, I'm on all those different social media sites. You can, I think you can put in pastor Steve Holt on most of those um, on Facebook and Twitter and all those different things that I'm on. Um, but I think that the kingdom of God revolution to me, if I were to hone it down to the irreducible minimum, Jim, it's loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbors yourself. If we could just start there, if we could become disciples of Jesus that love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, seven days a week, 168 hours in a week. And we'd love our neighbor as ourselves. If we could see that kind of a personal revival, personal awakening, personal revolution in your own heart. Wow. I mean, we could change a city. We could change a neighborhood. We could change a community. We could change a company if we started living that way. So first of all, it's that, that core number one most important commandment that Jesus gave, gave us, which is loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, Matthew 22, 35, 3, 40. But then I would say, secondly, it is, it is looking around and seeing yourself as a priest, king, and missionary. You're a priest, king, and missionary. First of all, for your own marriage, if you're married. First of all, for your own family. Start training your kids, Deuteronomy 6. I mean, start, start reading the word together, start praying together. I would say when in my book, The God While Marriage, when we did a rewrite and we did a revision of it, it came out about six months ago, The God While Marriage is basically verse by verse through Ephesians 5. So it's basically saying this, that the only way to have a happy marriage is to have two spirit-filled people, two spirit-filled people living together. That's the key to a successful marriage. But if I were to say there is a sound barrier. You know, we talk about uh, Chuck Yeager and the breaking of the sound barrier. Everybody said he couldn't do it in 1948 and 49, right? He said, what sound barrier? You know, and he went out and he broke the sound barrier with the, I think it was called the X-1 right. uh, rocket, rocket plane. So 
he broke that. Well, the sound barrier in most marriages, the hardest thing for people to do and probably the most powerful thing they could do is pray together. If you want to talk about a kingdom of God revolution, if a husband and wife would just start praying together, the, the, the windows of heaven would open up. I mean, it would be amazing. And so it's really Second Chronicles 7.14 in your marriage. Right, right. Secondarily, secondarily, pray together as a family. Regularly pray together as a family. And then watch what God would do just there. Then as we go out, we take that kingdom. We take the presence of God and the power of God into everything that we do. And by and which which then translates into these things that you're talking about, where we get involved at the local level. We have to be a great example. I, we were talking um, a little while back when we were on the phone. I mentioned, you know, just Justin Martyr in his apology to Antonius Pius, the then Emperor of Rome. He could rightly say, "Look at what we do as Christians. You're after us, and everyone's saying what a problem we are for." For Rome, we're not, and here's why. And I don't think I don't think a similar apologetic could be laid out in on in a broad base today. But that's that's where it starts. I think what you're saying is exactly where it starts. And I'm I'm uh, I've been very concerned. I I mean I it's just great. We're both on the same track about a third grade awakening. I really do think that that's the only thing that's going to change this around. There's a lot we could do politically. I'm going to continue to do it. You know, they, they I mean, all this stuff's important. So I'm not demeaning or diminishing that's right. uh, those efforts. Absolutely. It's all but simultaneous. It has to be happening together. It does. It really does. And, and, and again, so. we go back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is such a great example of that because he's got a trowel in one hand. He's rebuilding the walls, but he's also ready to fight. So you got to have both. And, um, and it's, it, you're, you, that's why we need leaders. That's yeah. why we need leaders who are men and women of action, not just talk, but you got to have action. And, you know, when you look at some of the great revivalists of our time, you know, you see, I would say with Jonathan Edwards in the first great awakening, his, his contribution was preaching and education. Those were kind of his two. He became the president of Princeton right before he died. Right. Um, I think he died of typhoid or something. He took the, he took the vaccine. And it was the early stages of the vaccine. But then you have Finney and Charles Finney was a lawyer. And so Charles Finney came with a message that was very logical, but he was also very, very extremely strong abolitionist. He was really against the slave trade. You have William Wilberforce who, who in England was saying, you know, the two great passions of my life are the ending of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. So that that's an example there of, you know, you, you really have two hands. There's probably about two things that most of us are called to do. And um, we got to do both. And some of them have to do with culture and some of them have to do with our spiritual uh, walk with God. So that's got you're on good ground historically to be churches like that, that care yeah. about the culture, but also worship God and love God with all of their heart, soul, mind and strength. Well, there's so much for us to cover, and I'm sure we're going to have to come back and do it some some time to get more to it. But I just want to say I'm going to put up links to all the stuff that uh, you mentioned there, your social media, uh, your church, to your books, so people can figure out more in our show notes. But uh, I just want to say you've been my pastor for a long time and a great friend, 
and I know the uh, vision and power that you have. You've, uh, you're an example in my mind, and I talk to pastors all over the country through the years that I've been doing what I do. Uh, there are very few of them that have that understanding of how we've got to engage and willingness to engage. Uh, and we do need we do need a reformation of manners in this country and a reformation of character and focus. So that does begin in the church with any country. I really believe that. Right. So, But with that, I want to thank you for uh, taking time to be on this podcast. We will pick it up again. And um, I, I'm just, I'm grateful for your life and your ministry, Steve, and Steve Holt of uh, The Road in Chapel Hills in Colorado Springs. People all over this country are, are going to be hearing this, and I think it's a message they needed to hear. So thanks for coming on the, the podcast yeah, today. Yep. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. Please be sure to go to our website, www.politicsisntnice.com. You can sign up for our email list there just at the top right of the webpage. And make sure to follow us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or even the iHeartRadio app. And give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about our podcast. Again, www dot politics isn't nice dot com join our email list at the top right hand of the page there and follow us on itunes spotify stitcher or iHeartRadio. thanks for joining the show today we'll be back soon